This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Sand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, COVID has passed. And as far as many people are concerned, here and elsewhere in Europe in particular, it's over. And people are acting accordingly. There's no such thing as social distancing. Very few people wear masks, some people on public transport, but not everybody. So where are we with COVID? And more interestingly, perhaps, where is the rest of the world? In China, for example, there is a massive crackdown to ensure that China's zero-COVID policy is implemented. Yesterday in Ireland, there were 720 cases, 60 people died, 21 hospital admissions, 28 hospital discharges, 185 hospital cases, that's people in hospital with COVID, and 26 people were in intensive care and to discuss this now, we're joined by Tomás Ryan, Associate Professor at the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College. Tomás was our guide, our principal guide, throughout the COVID crisis, which we can't forget, lasted for over two years. Tomás, thank you very much for joining us. The first thing I'd like to ask you about are those numbers. We don't get daily numbers now from the newspapers, or indeed from the national broadcaster. And the feeling that it's over seems to be very prevalent around the place. Where are we? Is it over? And maybe you could tell us about your own experience, because I know you contracted it. Well, it's it's definitely not over. Um, I think it's clear that Europe in general has come to the end of the first Omicron wave, or what we would call the, the Omicron wave. And in a way, it's it's good timing going into the summer months, because we know that COVID is an airborne disease, and it's transmitted by an airborne virus. And generally speaking, the more activities that are outdoors, uh, the less infections we're going to get. Now, last summer, we didn't really get the full benefit 
of that, of what we call seasonality, because we were relatively restricted in our activities until May. Uh, so even though the weather started to improve, of course, last summer, we also started to increase in activity. In contrast, this year, we've had relatively normal activity for the last few months. So therefore, this year, we would expect to see a bonus based on things moving more outdoors naturally with the good weather. So this happening at the same time as being in a trough uh, of, of COVID waves, being at a low point, uh, means that you know we can be hopeful that this is going to be a relatively uh, low-risk summer, at least by, by the standards of the last couple of years, uh, if we're lucky. However, as we go into autumn, there is almost certainly going to be uh, another wave, and that wave will be characterized by the variants that are there at the time and also the level of immunity in the population. Um, and that's, you know, that's the optimistic or, or neutral outcome. Uh, it's possible that something could happen sooner. What we're seeing across Europe is that most countries seem to have it either under control, such as Norway, or have just come to the end of their waves based on, based on infection. But it does seem that the UK, uh, the slowness in, of infections is is um, decreasing in the UK. In other words, the UK may be at the beginning of a new wave. It does seem, based on infection numbers, and we don't have perfect data, and also based on ICU admissions, that Ireland and Portugal may be at the beginning of a new wave, but it's too early to call that. And certainly the USA does seem to be at the beginning of a new wave right now. So, there, so COVID certainly has, has not gone away I think we're going to be dealing with it in one way or another for at least the next uh, few years. And we need to find sensible and hopefully non-invasive ways of, of managing it. Now, in the United States, incidentally, one million people have died of COVID. But of course, there are 320 million people in the United States. You had your own COVID experience. Could you tell us about that? Would you mind telling us about that? And it's past now, but there is a residue there? Well, it's a personal question, so I, I can't give any kind of a scientific answer, but, but I'm very happy to describe how, how it seemed to me. I mean, I had been avoiding COVID successfully for about two years, and so had my family. Um, and what happened to allow me to get COVID, I'm, I'm not sure did I get it, you know, in a shop or in my lab or, or did I get it on the on the dart going going to work but I hadn't changed my behavior what did change was everyone stopped wearing masks and it happened for me you know about a month after the Taoiseach decided that we had to drop all restrictions yes. uh, which I didn't agree with mainly I didn't agree with it primarily for the vulnerable and the immunocompromised not so much about myself I don't have any pre-existing conditions, but it was unpleasant, I found, to get COVID. Obviously, I'm fully vaccinated and boosted, but I had a breakthrough infection, uh, like many people. Um, and it's it's inconvenient for my family because we, we had them in tandem. We didn't all have them at the same time. Uh, so it feels like you're under lockdown. Um, it becomes very uh, debilitating in terms of work and education and everyone's experiencing this. But I, what was particularly interesting I found uh, was that I didn't have any 
flu-like symptoms. And it's, it's terrible to call COVID a flu or even compare COVID to a flu because it's nothing like the flu. The only reason we compare it to the flu is uh, we assume that the death rate of flu is acceptable. So we need to get COVID to the death rate of flu and, the, and then we yeah. can live with it. But COVID has morbidity and mortality uh, associated with it, with it that the flu uh, doesn't and and I didn't have any temperature and I didn't have uh, any aches and pains in in a flu like sense but it really did feel like I had been in a car accident uh, the, the the week before um, and I had a lot of brain fog and a lot of fatigue um, and I still have some lingering symptoms too much two months later nothing to whinge about uh, I can't run as far as I used to. I can't climb as many staircases as I used to without having to stop. And, and occasionally, you know, I find myself uh, forgetting ATM numbers uh, and passwords and stuff like that. And I, that never happened to me before. But largely speaking, I, I don't think what I have would be categorized as, as long COVID in a serious sense. You know, I'm still relatively young, so I'm, I'm very privileged in, in that respect. Um, but, it, but I... Having had it um, I, and spoken to people who've had it more recently, I think we can say that it's definitely not the flu, even in, in an anecdotal sense. It's, it's an unpleasant disease. Yes. It has lingering effects. And, and it's not something that you want to be getting two or three times a year if, if you can avoid it. Yes, because my observations when I go out, and I don't go out to any crowded restaurants or bars or anything like that, but just maybe to shop once a day, is that people are taking no precautions at all. And therefore, what you just said is important, that this is not a pleasant disease to get, a virus to get, and that after effects may well linger. Absolutely. But, but I do hope that the people who are in uh, very vulnerable positions, uh, such as yourself, Eamon, and such as yes. countless other people, uh, in Ireland, that the next few months uh, might give uh, a certain amount of respite in the sense that there's just going to be hopefully less risk of infection in the community, more outdoors activity. I would still strongly recommend wearing masks, uh, wearing FFP2 or K K95 masks in any indoor space, uh, but that the, the next next few months is, is going to be less of an onslaught uh, compared to the past, uh, what the past six to eight months were with the second Delta wave and with the Omicron wave. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, let me ask you, Tomas, about your own journey with COVID. You were and the group you were with, the independent scientific advocacy group, you were rather militant, more than Neffet was, about restrictions. And I don't know if it would be proper to describe you as zero COVID people, but certainly that phrase was used. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on? Is there anything that you believed before and you now don't well i think science is is a process of of changing your mind yeah that, that's that's how we discover things and and everyone is wrong science is about being slightly less wrong uh with each stage of the process yes when i look at my own uh assessment um of the pandemic as, as a scientific observer um I think there were two things that I majorly dropped the ball on in my assessment, my personal assessment of, of where we were. And I think a lot of my colleagues did too. And the most important one was the centrality of this being an airborne virus. Yes. Um, and, I, and I really can't emphasize this enough. Now, at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, we were being told it was based on droplet transmission and yes. contact, wash your hands. Remember, you you touch a you touch a trash can on the street, and then you you think you need to go home and wash your hands as soon as possible. It was it was very uh, we were very careful with hand sanitizer and everything like that, and um, it became clear very quickly, or it should have been obvious that our skepticism should have been orientated towards this being an airborne virus. It turned out it was an airborne virus. Face masks were crucial. Good face masks were crucial. Um, and though um, many of us accepted that, okay, Neffet didn't accept that and the government didn't accept that because it would have made them responsible for environments that they was under their control. But even though me and many of my colleagues accepted that it was airborne by, say, you know, May 2020, which is relatively early in the game, we didn't embrace the importance of it. And the reason that we didn't embrace the importance of it 
was because we were all under lockdown. I mean, at that point in the pandemic, we were either under lockdown or we had almost no cases in the country as in summer 2020, and then mm -hmm. we were under lockdown. So, so the nature of airborne transmission didn't seem so important right then, but it was extremely important Yes, uh, as we started to open up. It was extremely important in particular post-vaccination. It was extremely important uh, for having schools being a safe environment. Um, and if we had we adopted airborne control, air hygiene early yes. on, it would have been lockdowns would have been faster uh, and it would have been easier to manage everything. Now, we, of course, you know, arrived at this zone in 2021 when we started opening schools in September 2021. We as in me and my colleagues uh, in the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group and many other observers in the country. But we were quite late to it. Okay, we may not have been as late to it as the government. I mean, you could argue the government still hasn't even arrived at the importance of airborne transmission. Yes. Uh, but we should have been embracing that uh, at the very beginning. And it was people like Orla Hegarty at UCD and John Wegner at UCC who were the ones who were really leading that aspect of disease prevention in Ireland. And it's largely, I think, why Japan has been relatively successful at dealing with COVID. So um, I think that that was a mistake. Um, the second thing that I don't think we were willing to look in the eye early on was the effect on children. Again, we were advocating for keeping schools safe uh, in a very uh, forthright way from September, August 2021. But like everyone else at the beginning of the pandemic, we were probably guilty of downplaying the risk to children or of hoping that it wasn't yes. going to be a problem for children. And it is a problem for children, obviously not as much as for adults and older people. But I think in doing so, uh, that contributed to the very low level of vaccination that we have in Ireland for children. We've got great vaccination uh, for the entire population, but we've got only 20% of primary school kids to, to today are vaccinated. I think that's a very poor result, uh, particularly for a country with such high vaccine enthusiasm. So those were two things that I think, it's, it's not to say you change your mind or you go from thinking this is important from thinking this is not important. It's about how much you prioritize it, yes. how much you emphasize and how much you recognize uh, its importance. Um, but other than that, I don't think um, many of us in our sort of zone of wanting to control the virus before we had widespread vaccination uh, would think that that's an approach that hasn't worked. Because when we look back at how different countries have performed, uh, it seems clear to me that the countries that have aggressively suppressed the virus before we had widespread vaccination have had the lowest death rates, have had the least time in lockdown, yes. um, and have had the lowest levels of of long COVID. And I wouldn't like to describe, I don't think I describe myself as, as militant. Um, I think that as we went through the pandemic, there was a lot of polarization that was in a sense created by the media. Um, there was, it was created as a very kind of debate like, like format. Yes. Uh, nobody in our group was ever advocating for anything like what's happening in China now. Um, and actually, um, I would have to point out that what we were advocating for was an anti-lockdown strategy. What we were advocating for was to control the virus 
in a way that did not rely on, on, on lockdowns every time that you had an outbreak. And I think Australia is a great example of that because Australia, you know, on any particular day, there were only zero COVID or on any particular week in, in some states in Australia, there were only what you would call zero COVID, maybe three days a week. And the other days they had cases in the community, but their public health doctors took care of it. South Korea, I always thought was the model, um, although logistically probably never would have been possible for us to have that degree of testing and tracing, such as they didn't even have a lockdown in the first wave of COVID. So I think that the, the point of keeping the virus low for me from the beginning was about reducing the time spent in restrictions because we could see at the beginning of the pandemic that if we didn't control the virus, we would have rolling waves of infection yes. and therefore rolling lockdowns. Now, the counter to that, of course, and I still I still get this criticism from, from many people, is that, but you wanted to quarantine people coming into the country. You wanted or significantly reduce travel coming into the country. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, and then I've had some journalists point out, well, that's a form of lockdown. It's like, well, no, not really. Yeah. That's It's a very different thing. Um, we thought that for most of the pandemic, it would be better to put the cost on travel into the country so that we could have a relatively normal life in, in Ireland up to the point of widespread vaccination. Um, I think very few people, uh, in fact, I don't know anyone who would even in private say that we should be having a zero COVID policy today in Ireland. Um, and I think it's also important to point out that the methods for elimination should be tailored to the country that you're in, should be tailored to the cultural yes. norms and the logistical abilities of the, of the country that you're in and the, advantage, the advantages that you might have uh, in that country. So Australia did it its own way New Zealand did it its own way. South Korea did it. You know, they had different strengths. For New Zealand, the strength was it, it controlled its borders perfectly. For Australia, its strength was excellent public health medicine. And they were just really, really organized uh, on the ground. And the states took control of it because the federal government in Australia tried to take a much more relaxed approach. Um, but it was the states in Australia that autonomously figured out what they wanted to do. And in South Korea, their advantages were their infrastructure for keeping the, the disease under surveillance, which wouldn't stand up to European GDP or law, uh, but that's another thing. So the methods China are using today are obviously inhumane, and I don't think uh, anyone would would propose that even if we could do it in a humane way today, that it's it's really the best outcome today. I mean, New Zealand has opened up. But it opened up after it had 90% vaccination with the Pfizer vaccine. And since yes. then, it's had a low death rate. It even today has a lower death rate than the UK or Ireland uh, because it's managing things so well. So for me, it seems clear that New Zealand um, and maybe Japan are the models of how to live with the virus today. And, and we can illustrate this, Eamon, even with the past six months. Between January uh, first, 2022, that's January of this year, and April 30th of 2022 in Ireland, we have had 1,074 COVID deaths. So now think about that. Between January yes. and April of this year, um, so we're talking about the Omicron wave, we've had nine deaths a day, 1,074 deaths. Yes. Now in the entire pandemic, in the entire pandemic, 
New Zealand has had 929 deaths so far. Right. Now, if that's not success, I don't know what is. Norway has had 3,000 deaths in the entire pandemic. They're still keeping things under control relatively well now, although Finland and Denmark aren't quite performing as well as they used to. In the entire pandemic, Taiwan has had 1,000 deaths. They have five times their population. So it's like in the entire pandemic, Taiwan had 200 deaths relative to Ireland. And they would have had less than that, except that they dropped the ball on vaccination of the elderly. And South Korea has had only 25,000 deaths in the entire pandemic. That's the equivalent of us having 2,500 deaths. So I think that the proof is very much in the pudding. Uh, how many deaths did the, did the country have uh, before and after vaccination and how much time did we spend in restrictions? And my concern is that for Ireland, uh, we haven't had great success before widespread vaccination. We are mid-table in Europe. We have the same amount of total deaths as the Netherlands, which is the most densely populated country in Europe. There's some uh, questionable analysis going around to say that we had you know, low excess deaths. Uh, that's not actually true. We, we were also relatively mid-table in Europe when it comes to excess deaths. Um, and of course, excess deaths are affected by things other than COVID. They're also affected by restrictions. So the more time you spend in restrictions, the more you reduce deaths by, by other causes too. Um, but we, we had a large amount of deaths before widespread vaccination. And I would also say we, we haven't been doing great post-widespread vaccination. Um, but that's true also of many of the excellent players in Europe, like Finland and Denmark. Um, so it seems to me that when we look at the last six months, uh, which I guess is the best proxy of, of living with the virus, uh, living well with the virus, I would be looking at Japan, I would be looking at New Zealand, to a certain extent, uh, Australia. Uh, I don't think that China is, is a reasonable comparison. I don't, I don't think it's appropriate that the language we have about China not, not pivoting on zero COVID is, is somehow an, uh, a criticism of other countries that had that approach until we had widespread vaccination. Um, it's very hard to tell what's, what's going on in China. Um, but it has been pointed out that 80% of manufacturing in China happens in areas of the country that don't have COVID in them currently. So although what's happening in Shanghai and other cities and places that we may not be aware of in China is brutal, um, I don't think it's plausible to say that the Chinese are doing this just out of vanity for having the best approach. And I've, I've seen observers say that. Uh, and neither do I think the Chinese are trying to save lives under any uh, costs. I mean, they are doing this because in their calculus, this is good for the economy and this is good for their geopolitical position. And the second the Chinese believe that it's not good for the economy, they will then change their approach. Yes. And Shanghai has 25 million people. It is a very important commercial city. In China, the most commercial with the most enterprise, the most foreign people in it too. When people use the phrase zero COVID, Tomas, does it mean what the Prime Minister of New Zealand did, what the Australians did, a very, very rigorous imposition of restrictions on travel and particularly on people coming into their countries and restrictions on social life, 
to the point where it doesn't really exist. Is that what zero COVID means? In other words, you can squeeze it out of your society, your community, but it requires 100% commitment. Zero COVID, I think it refers to the result rather than the methods, because the methods can be different depending on the country. Uh, the technical term is, is elimination, which right. means you get rid of the pathogen from the community. Yes. I remember, Eamon, in an early podcast we did in 2020, uh, we outlined the three options. One was mitigation, two was suppression, three was elimination, yes. zero COVID. Mitigation means you do rolling lockdowns until it's over. As we had, we had three and a half or four lockdowns in Ireland, and the last lockdown was four or five months, depending on who you were. Uh, but after the first lockdown, people were arguing that there wouldn't even be a second wave. And so uh, that's why we fell into the mitigation scenario. And I remember hearing Michal Martin uh, give his speech uh, in October 2020, where he basically said, we have to open up and close down with the virus. That's just the way it is. In other words, we acquiesced to a mitigation strategy in October 2020. And for me, I found that very depressing. The middle option was the suppression scenario. Suppression means you always have the virus in the community, but you keep it at low levels so you don't need to have lockdowns. Um, and I remember the Irish Times wrote an editorial um, in, I think it was May or June 2020, um, after we had outlined these three options, saying suppression is a realistic choice for Ireland. They thought elimination was unrealistic. Mitigation, everyone agrees, is awful. That's what we did. That's what we experienced. Um, as suppression turned out to be harder for most countries than anyone thought at the beginning. Um, and that's why I became interested in the elimination strategy. So for the first three months of the pandemic, from, I would say, May 2020, to, sorry, March 2020 to May 2020, I didn't think elimination was the best approach for Ireland. I thought suppression was the approach. I thought the South Korean methodology of simply hunting out the virus, but always having it at low levels in the community was the most practical approach. Um, and I moved away from that personally because I started to speak a lot more to epidemiologists um, and people who had experience in outbreak control um, and you start to see how much work that is. And you start to see that that's like keeping your hotel open while there's a fire in 10% of the rooms. It's, it's just not a yeah. practical thing to do. And the only country in the world that I'm aware of that managed to maintain suppression uh, was South Korea with their infrastructure. And you could argue, um, you know, if you were very charitable, you could argue Norway and Finland uh, but really what they had was just a very, very successful mitigation strategy. And then the third option, of course, was elimination, which is what we call zero COVID, which means get it out of the community, get the fire out of the environment. Um, and New Zealand did it. Uh, and when we saw New Zealand did it, uh, it seemed to us, and then Taiwan, Taiwan was doing it, Australia did it. Uh, and of course, China was doing it, but no one endorses their particular methodology. So that was what we thought was the best approach for Ireland. Um, it did mean having to do a lockdown first. In summer 2020, we thought it could be done with local lockdowns because we only had 10 or 20 cases a day in the country. And it was a case of cornering out the virus. Uh, but then uh, it was obvious we were going to have to start it with a lockdown. Our view was that we were going to have to have a lockdown anyway, 
So we may as well to stop the healthcare service being overwhelmed. And that's what happened. And we had a second lockdown and a third lockdown. So the view was use it to eliminate the virus. We did eliminate the virus in the first wave. We know we did uh, because all of the second wave in autumn 2022 was a different strain of the virus. It yes. wasn't. We, we killed the virus with our first lockdown in Ireland. So we learned that we could eliminate it. Uh, the problem is we imported again. So yes, that meant travel restrictions. And of course, that was never going to work unless Northern Ireland was on board. And if Northern Ireland wasn't on board, then the best we could have hoped for would have not been zero COVID, but aggressive suppression. Um, so in a sense, zero COVID is zero tolerance for COVID. Yes. And if we had more of a Finland result or more of a Norway result, even more of a Denmark result, then we would have had potentially three to four times less deaths and less time in, in severe restrictions. Uh, that shouldn't have to be you know, a controversial thing. That's simply the virus is causing some damage. And let's see what we can do to, to reduce that damage. Uh, you have to work within your logistical constraints. You have to work with what's culturally acceptable uh, and ethical. In, in your own country. But what I would just point out is that most of the population did support uh, what this would require uh, based on all polling uh, right from the second second wave. So what we did was, was what we did. We had a mitigation strategy. Um, I don't think we would have ever gotten it perfect in Ireland, but I think we could have done uh, a bit better than we did. Just a one final question, Tomás, and it's from the perspective of where we are now in Ireland. What do we know about long COVID? Of course, it's, what, two years and three months, perhaps, since we encountered COVID. Is it far too early to say? Can we have an educated guess at the long-lasting health issues of long COVID consequences, health consequences of long COVID, or is it too early to say? Well, it's a little bit worse than um, a lot of us were hoping. Uh, long COVID is becoming a serious problem. We don't have great numbers on it in Ireland because we don't have great data on it in Ireland. Uh, we can extrapolate from the British data, which means that right now, in and around 125,000 people in Ireland are suffering from long COVID. There's a second dimension to long COVID. Uh, we often think of long COVID in terms of your symptoms are persisting for three months, six months longer. Um, there's also COVID sequelae, which means you've had COVID and it's not so much that your COVID symptoms are persisting, it's that something else breaks a month later or two months later. Something else happens. It doesn't feel like it's linked with your COVID or the experience of having COVID, yes. but it's something that would not have happened otherwise. And the study, a study from the Center of Disease Control in the USA recently reported that one-fifth of people who've had COVID had some other condition occur a few months later. Um, and as, as a result of having had COVID? It, this statistically... It, it seems yes. that a lot of conditions are now being caused by having had COVID. That's one in five adults. Um, yesterday, we had a study that came out in a journal called Nature Medicine, which is one of the most credible scientific journals in the world. 
And it was a study of over 15 million people. And it was specifically looking at long COVID in breakthrough COVID cases. This is people like me who've been fully vaccinated and then they got COVID for the first time. Yes. So breakthrough COVID infection. And what they found was that when you had breakthrough COVID, you still had a strong risk of long COVID. You were only about uh, 10 or 15% less likely to get long COVID than if you weren't vaccinated. So that means the vaccines do prevent long COVID, but only slightly. Um, the study also found that you had a risk, uh, only 34% only risk of less risk of death as a consequence of being vaccinated. So, which is also not great, but what was particularly alarming was the extent of conditions uh, that are being caused by long COVID, that symptoms are emerging at neurological levels, at cardiovascular levels, right. at respiratory levels, blood clots, musculoskeletal conditions, diabetes, and kidney failure. Um, and we're not going to see what the long-term effect of this yes. is, really is for the population for some time. Um, another study in um, Imperial College London and extending on earlier, earlier studies in Canada have indicated that long COVID in people who are over 50 could account for a reduction in your IQ because it this is a neurotropic virus. It affects the brain. It will keep people like me very busy for the next 20 or 30 years uh, because I'm a neuroscientist. Um, and this is this will this is what we mean when we say brain fog, reduced attention, reduced memory. Yes. Um, it gets to the brain. It also affects cells around the brain. And, and this is, this is, this is part, of, part of what long COVID is. What's particularly worrying about yesterday's study is that it makes it clear that being fully vaccinated does not uh, significantly reduce your risk of long COVID. It does significantly reduce your risk of death, yes. obviously, which is brilliant. It obviously reduces your risk of ICU admission and hospital admission, which is brilliant. That's why we're, we're kind of functional now as a, as a society. Um, but it's, it's not significantly reducing your risk of long COVID. What we don't know is what's going to happen with repeated infection, right? What we don't yes. know is if you can get the virus two to three times a year, and it, you can get the virus two to three times a year, um, which is going to be an issue with with waning immunity after the summer uh, when that wave hits, um, then is that going to have a cumulative effect on long COVID? Is it like going to be you're hit multiple times? Uh, we don't know. You know, that's a known unknown. And so, you know, no one, no one should be, I think, you know, overly alarmed by this. But I think even the singular risk of long COVID is, is significantly worrying. So, you know, what do we do about it? Uh, I'm not suggesting we lock down for it. No, no one is suggesting we lock down for it. But we need to be having serious attention, I think, to air hygiene. Yes, and that's the point that I wanted to get to, really, that young people in particular, but people of all ages who aren't immunocompromised, they might feel free now. Ah, what the hell? You know, it's over. Omicron is not so bad and okay, if I get it, I get it. To counteract that is very important. And what you're saying there about long COVID is really the bottom line, isn't it? 
I think it, it, it is, and it, it's it's the bottom line for your, your children and your teenagers yes. and your young adults. And, and I'm struck, Eamon, by um, when you look at other countries. Um, and in, in the last period, I, I've traveled a little bit uh, to other European countries, um, and I'm just struck by how much more cautious they are than Ireland and, and Great Britain. Um, even after all restrictions were dropped, more or less in, in Germany, people still have a very large degree of caution, yes. more mask wearing. Um, and I've, I've noticed the same in, in some other places. So the way that we deal with COVID in terms of the general population is, is really affected, I think, by messaging and by, by government leadership. I mean, in Ireland and in, and in the UK, we've really had this sort of either open or lockdown mentality throughout the the pandemic. And, and, you know, it wasn't like that in other places in Europe necessarily, including actually the USA, where they had an attitude of, you know, we're just going to have areas of society that are exposed because we don't have good social supports. And we're going to have areas of society where people who can work at home will work at home, the more privileged classes. And what that meant was that a lot of people in the USA effectively lived under lockdown for the entire pandemic. You know, it wasn't even yes. mitigation in how we call it. It was, it was like constant lockdown for a large part of the population. And for other people in that population, they were just constantly exposed, uh, which is, which is awful in, in another way. Um, but I, so I think that the, we, we look at, at things through the prism of our own national conversation. And I do feel like in Ireland, we're just a little bit too cavalier yes. about where we are with the the risk uh, to the individual. Um, I think we we need to have a proper assessment over the pandemic of the past two years because it affects how we deal with future pandemics. Um, it affects how we may deal with future variants of this virus after the summer, but certainly we need to be concerned about future pandemics. And I think that re- that needs to be done in a very honest way. Uh, it needs to be done objectively by people who are not involved in managing the pandemic. I mean, that's just obvious that it should be should be different people assessing how the past two years went. Um, I was recently asked, Eamon, by uh, a very senior politician, um, how do we think we could have done better in in Ireland? We, forgetting about whether you have a zero COVID strategy or not, but are there things we could have done to improve the outcomes? Um, And I think there's a number of things that are worth briefly pointing out here at a tactical level. By a tactical level, I mean not what the goal was, but just how we did things on on a day-to-day basis. Um, And and it seems to me that there's, there's five or six things that I would just briefly point out. One is nursing homes in the first wave. We had a disproportionate number of deaths in Ireland in our nursing homes, more than any European country, uh, by a significant margin, as far as I'm aware. So that needs to be recognized. The second was travel. Ironically, we didn't manage travel at all in after the first wave uh, compared to other northern European countries. And this is what seeded our second wave. We could have, I thought, I think, delayed that. Third is testing and tracing. We really shut down testing and tracing to a large extent in summer 2020. I don't know why we did that. It seems to me that was a blunder. And if we hadn't had done that, then we would have 
maybe been able to deal with those outbreaks in Kildare, Leash and Offaly. I remember us discussing that yes. at the end of summer. If we could have stopped those with testing and tracing, maybe we wouldn't have needed a second lockdown, but we'll never know because, because the system was wound down. The, a big blunder was a meaningful Christmas. If we had just yeah. decided not to do the meaningful Christmas, we would have saved possibly 2,000 to 2,500 lives. Italy, another Catholic country that has a similar attitude to social values as we had decided to do a preemptive lockdown before uh, Christmas 2020. I'm not saying we should have done that, but not have, but it, but it, mitigated for their Christmas. And we, you know, I think the, the meaningful Christmas was, it was a major blunder. And lastly, I would just say that the, the continuous lack of focus on airborne transmission is been, has been a major, um, major wall that we haven't been able to get across in Ireland. This has affected workplace transmission and particularly school transmission. Um, and Belgium is starting to really face this, really look the airborne issue in the eye in the way that Japan uh, has already done. And so I think that that is something that we've resisted for too long. And I, and I emphasize resisted because, we, you know, there were there were many points where we could have picked that up as a way of, of dealing with the pandemic. Those five things were not strategic things. Those five things could have been done differently. Uh, without having any kind of a zero COVID strategy and would have had a huge effect on our performance. Uh, we would have then clustered, you know, with the performance of Finland and people would have said, oh, it's because you're an island, it was easy. You, you add an aggressive suppression strategy, then maybe we would have clustered with Iceland in terms of our performance. And people would have said, it's inevitable because you're an island with a, with a small, sparse population on the edge of Europe. But nothing is inevitable. Uh, and had we done things differently, we could have had twice as many deaths, uh, we could have, which would be the number of deaths that the UK have. So I also think it's important to give credit where credit is due. We had a fantastic vaccination campaign. We had a fantastic uh, planning, delivery, execution of that campaign. And even now, we've had excellent timing of the fourth dose. The fourth dose is so important for people who are vulnerable. Uh, and the timing of the fourth dose, I think, is is really excellent as well as we move out of this wave uh, and to, to prepare for whatever is, is coming ahead. Uh, we've also had brilliant social cohesion. Uh, we've had brilliant financial support compared to a lot of countries for people who have been suffering. Yes. Um, and we've had uh, in in many in many cases, we've had we've had excellent pragmatic day-to-day -day management of of many things in the pandemic even when even when mistakes have been made other 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 things have been done in i think a relatively honest fashion uh in in many respects by people in in power but i think um you know the, the, there's it's it's having polarized discussions about this is never the way to go i think we need to have an open and objective conversation about what what went well and what didn't Okay, Tomas, we're very grateful to you for guiding us through the pandemic and we hope to talk to you again, but particularly today for your reflections on where we are at the moment. We're very grateful to Tomas, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.